0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay
1: until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Calls for police reform have gained traction in the weeks since George Floyd's death.
2: This moment is so full of potential and hope that I, I pray that it is not wasted in any way, shape, or
1: form. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, a former police chief and an historian untangle proposals ranging from improved transparency and training to abolishing the system as we know it. And a much quieter protest erupts in a Georgia detention center where risk of COVID infections is high. An investigative journalist spoke with ICE detainees in Irwin County who say they've been given few protections and kept in the dark.
0: As I started asking them questions as a reporter, they would stop me. And say, no, you tell us what's happening, what's happening outside, and what's happening in here, what is going to happen to us.
1: Plus stories from the historic neighborhood that made George Floyd. On Second Thought is coming up. First, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought, I'm Virginia Prescott. In the week since protests against police brutality began in Minneapolis, calls to reform, defund, or abolish the police have been escalating. Demands for reform or cuts to police budgets aren't new among activists, but a pledge by the Minneapolis City Council to, quote, dismantle the police department is unprecedented. The mayors of Los Angeles and New York City have announced that they would both divert funds from police departments to social service budgets. Here to talk with us more about what reform, defunding, or abolishing police could look like here in Georgia and across the nation is Cedric Alexander. He is former chief of police of DeKalb County. Cedric, thanks so much for for joining us. yeah.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you. Also with us, Michael Leo Owens. He's associate professor of political science at Emory University, where he researches the intersection of politics and policing. Michael, thanks for taking the time.
2: You're welcome. Thank you very much.
1: All right. I'm going to start with you, Cedric. Calls for reforming policing after a number of officer-involved killings over the past five years. But what do you think is different about the demands being made now during these protests?
3: I think what's really different for all of us is that all of us got to witness a murder happen right in front of us. It was tragic. It was horrific. And it was uh, carried out by those who are supposed to protect and serve. And if we think about that image, which is very hard to get out of our minds, I think for this country, that became a tipping point another tipping point in terms of there must be change in our police agencies. Now, we also have to keep in mind that in recent weeks before Mr. Floyd's murder, we also had Ahmaud Aubrey and then Rihanna Taylor. And then if that was not enough, then you had the case in Central Park where a white woman used her white womanness to weaponize herself, to get a black man in trouble with the police. And that is also reminiscent of a history in this country, i.e. Emmett Teal. And then on May 25th, we saw the execution of Mr. Floyd and how horrific that was for us to watch him die right in front of us. All that led up to where we are at this very moment. So at this very moment, yes, we're going to see reform as we speak, Congress is in session and House Judiciary is hearing testimony around what needs to happen very different. All in all, we're going to see some federal changes as it relates to police reform. But the real reform, quite frankly, is going to be at the local level.
1: All right, I'm going to stop you there because you've unpacked so much that I really want to take pick up point by point. But Michael's work has been very much about the origins of policing in this country, so specifically the formation of slave patrols to control Black communities since the 17th century, since before it was a country. So I want to get to some of that historical context. Michael, what does that bring to our understanding of present-day calls for reform?
2: Well, one thing that we want to think about if we talk about the history or origins of police and policing in the United States is that there is no way to have a a very serious and informed conversation without referencing words like social control and oppression and segregation and separation, all of those things. Uh, We also need to be clear that we've had police, uniformed police in the United States for a very, very long time, right? Our first department is formed in Boston in uh, 1838. You get Atlanta in 1873. We get the Cab County in 1915. And from the start of having police in the United States, there have always been calls for reform Mm -hmm. of the police. Like within within years of the formation of the first police departments, people were calling for reforms of the police departments, partly on the grounds of police violence against civilians. And so the contemporary conversation, unfortunately, you know, is getting the full attention it deserves now. But of course. It needed this full attention a long, long time ago.
1: All right. So, Cedric, I want to pick up on Michael's point, getting attention now, seeing a lot of calls to defund or abolish the police. Now, you've raised some issues with the terms defunding and abolition in previous conversations. Can you tell us why?
3: Well, you know, the term defunding can be very confusing right now. What they're referring to And I'll give you a good example is what Mayor de Blasio is doing in New York City. He's taking part of that two, three billion dollar budget that NYPD has, putting it over in some social services, jobs program, mental health, those kinds of things that theoretically may help drive down some crime when people have support. When we start and always say to get away from the term defunding and redirect some of that budget to other areas that would really help support policing so that they can continue to provide the type of service they need to provide.
2: Well, I'd like to actually, I do think that we need to try to be as clear as possible. Defund the police is really a moment to have a conversation about what is the scale of police and policing that we believe that we truly need in our communities. When I think about defund the police, I can imagine it, you know, being on a continuum of things where perhaps the most extreme thing would be full divestment from police and policing, which would fit with the idea of, you know, police abolition. But I also know moving along the continuum, I can think that, well, no, defund the police might mean we disband a local police department, but allow some other police department to still do the policing, right? We see this or saw this in Camden, New Jersey, for instance. We could also think about defunding the police, meaning diversion of some money or a lot of money to non-police work. It could even mean that we're thinking about where are the places where we do and don't need the police, right? So now we have a number of activists and non-activists raising the question of, well, do we actually need police in schools? And I would also say that under the banner of you know, defund the police is, is the concern about the ways in which we fund what appears to be police militarization in cities and counties across the United States. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I, I do think that when we talk about defund the police, we need to have all of those elements in the conversation that it just can't be, oh, it's either full blown abolition. Of course, many people who say defund the police, that's what they mean and that's what they want. But for a lot of other people signing on to it, I do think that they, they see shades or dimensions mm-hmm. of what they're trying to pursue and seek.
1: We're talking about calls to abolish or defund the police that have been escalating across the nation. Michael Leo Owens with us, associate professor of political science at Emory University, also Cedric Alexander, former chief of police in DeKalb County. All right, so I'd like to get into those gradations, but you know what I'm also hearing here is Cedric, as somebody who used to be a chief of police and knows what the behavior is like and knows what the unions are like. I mean, so far, the biggest obstacles to reform have been police unions. Atlanta's police union condemned the firing of the two uh, police officers who tased college students, for example, during the protests. Union President Jason Segura said that officers are now scared to do their jobs for fear of repercussions. So, Cedric, just how powerful are local unions when it comes to even getting into the gradations that Michael was talking about—the levels of conversation about police reform?
3: Well, first of all, let me say this: If you're employed as a police officer in the South, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, you may have a unions or semblance of a union. You're not in New York, New Jersey, Minnesota, where a lot of police officers have bills of rights. That's a whole different dynamic. So that being said, yes, unions are there to protect the interests of their membership. They're not there to build community relationships. Theirs sometimes becomes the rub, because for me as management, doing periods of negotiation, it's almost like horse trading. What am I going to give up in management to give to unions? A lot of the ability to discipline has been given up by management through negotiation. Either they were poor negotiators or they got politically caught up in unions and they did favors for them as opposed to doing what was for the best interest of the people in which they're served. So I'm not gonna let management off the hook of this. I wanna go back to what Mike was talking about in regards to defunding. I love all of those ideas. I think they all should be put on the table. The important thing here that I would like to see done if we talk about defunding, if you're going to take part of those police budgets to give some type of public service, that means these officers don't have to try to be everything to everybody. By creating jobs and opportunities and education and mental health, as crime goes down, then I don't have to ask for more money to hire police because I won't need as many police theoretically, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't, we won't know that until we test it. But I do like the idea of keeping all those different variables on the table as we talk about defunding. It's just right now, the American people are confused when they hear the term defunding and so are many police chiefs across this country when they hear it.
2: I would just add, you know, what's really, I think, super important about defund the police. In some people's ears, it's so harsh. And of course, what that does is it forces people to think about the extreme as a a move towards trying to get people to just be willing to accept other sets of reforms that are nowhere near as as extreme. So I think that that that's key. The second thing is it also is asking us to stop for a minute and think about, well, how much are we funding the police? Do we fund too much? Do we fund too little?
1: Well, it's generally the biggest line item in most city budgets. If I that's can I right,
2: think. that's right. I mean, now maybe all that is necessary, but it does at least allow us to stop for a moment and, and ask, well, what is all this money going to? And also, what are we getting from it? Are the clearance rates going up over time as we spend more? No. Are more people reporting crime? No. So it's a legitimate question that gets put out there when you say defund the police, because then police departments and policymakers and the broad public, you know, needs to be clear about, well, what are you you doing with this money? and What are you getting for this money? Mm -hmm. So the matter of of police unions, the broader question is, who are the police ultimately accountable to? You know, Cedric made a very strong point and a clear point that with regards to police unions, they see police as being accountable to, right, their membership, their members, Mm -hmm. right, themselves. But what about the idea of like civilian or democratic accountability? And why is it that when the public says it would like to see a set of changes made, no deference is ever given to the public's voice? <laughs> deference is always made to the voice of the officer. Now, it could be because we say when well, the officers know best because they're doing the work day in and day out. So, of course, they know more than I do. But if you look at how police describe you know, their day to day work, a lot of it is what we refer to as administrative policing, mm-hmm. right? It's not every day when they go on the job, they're encountering really bad people. And so, the idea of, of the police being accountable to varieties of interests is something that we need to take very, very seriously. And again, there has to be some way for the public to not just have its voice heard, but for what's said to be translated into new rules, new regulations that actually fit with the perspectives and wants and values and needs of communities and the very communities that are out there.
1: Well, I want to look at some of the reforms that have been proposed. The Urban League of Greater Atlanta has proposed this 10-point plan, including comprehensive retraining, appointing special prosecutors to investigate police misconduct, reviewing and revising deadly force policies. Let's be clear. I mean, there's been no legislation tied to this yet. But can you shed light on some of those specifics? Michael, I'll ask you first, because I know you studied them in other places and then would love to get your perspective on that. Where do do you want to begin there?
2: We have had reforms for, again, right, over a century of police reforms in the United States. A couple of things. One, there's reform at the federal level, right? But then also we have to think about, as Cedric raised earlier, reforms at the bottom. Now we can identify all kinds of things that could be considered reform: more body cameras, having policies that body cameras must be on, uh, doing away with no-knock mm-hmm. approaches to houses, police not having access to uh, military-grade equipment, you know, more community policing efforts, more trust-building, legitimacy efforts. And we also need to be clear that we can point to some police agencies right now that have all of those things or many of those things and you still see these cases of police violence against civilians. So I just want to be clear, we can have all the reforms in the world, but if the implementation of those reforms isn't like serious and respected and regarded by the police themselves, the reforms aren't going to make a difference. Like at this point, almost no one needs to put another reform on the table. Because we have so many reforms that we could be trying and testing out. Again, it comes down to how do we administer them? How do we implement them? And guess what? When people implement inappropriately or unethically, how do we hold them accountable?
1: Cedric, I want to ask you about that. I mean, you've made the point before that one of the changes needs to happen is a cultural shift, bottom to the top in policing, with an emphasis on more careful recruiting. So what does that look like?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, here's how I think about it. And this probably will address some of the things that Michael just brought up, as he beautifully stated. One of the most important things that we have to do, who are we recruiting? And if you look at those four men out there on May 25th, Mr. Floyd's body, you have to ask yourself, where was humanity? Where was a moral compass? And where was the respect for people in which you serve? Those things cannot be taught in a police academy. You have to be raised with those types of values. You have to have a sense of compassion to be a police officer. Because if you don't have that, You can't mask it, but for so long. So we got to make sure in our recruitment efforts, I need to know who you are in here, in your heart. That means that you have to do a much deeper and broader background investigation. That means that you also have to use psychological tools with a licensed psychologist that can go into and hopefully get some indication of more who and what your personality is. Now, That is not 100% foolproof, correct? But let's say we recruit based on those fundamental principles. And then now you're assigned to a police precinct. There has to be good supervision for you there. Because here's the thing, even if I slip in and I don't really have a compassion or a sense of duty towards people that I'm serving, people around you are going to see it When you have good supervision, when there's accountability, then what happens, it means that I can't bring my sexism or my racism or my uh, uh, xenophobic self into that environment and survive because there are going to be people around me that's going to check me or either I get my stuff together or I'm gone. What's going on in policing, when you hear about this whole notion, well, we all got a few bad guys, you do. And now the whole barrel is poisoned because if you're in an environment and you sustain those few bad guys, that environment, that culture is complicit to that behavior. So we have to take a far greater responsibility from the top of that organization down to the last person hired. Michael is right. For years, we have been talking about reform and nothing changes. Mm -hmm. But I think, and I hope we're at a place that we can make some significant change in our environment by doing these things that I'm suggesting, that Michael's suggesting, because that's where the real change, just talking about it or uh, making one or two tweaks here, is not gonna do it. We got mm-hmm. to fix those dysfunctional cultures in policing.
2: Could I just add very quickly to the, the point of, of recruitment? The police that you talk about and that you have problems with, someone recruited them. <laughs> right. And, you know, Cedric's, I, I really like this point that Cedric raised that, right? Cedric didn't say the police are racist. He didn't say anything about implicit racial bias or any of that stuff, because in some ways we could put that aside, and but we can focus on some other psychological things that we know influence how police and human beings generally bela- behave, right? And so we have social psychologists who study what? Social dominance, right? There are some people who walk around with these ideas in their minds that some groups should be dominated <laughs> and oppressed, by other groups, what else do they study, and can they tell us about authoritarianism? That there are some police who walk around with very authoritarian attitudes, where if anyone were to say anything back to them, they're ready to bust ahead. head. And so, what I would suggest and add on to what Cedric is saying is that when it comes to recruitment, we also have to be thinking about, like psychologically, what are we recruiting, as well as continuing to perform, I'd say, psychological evaluations of officers over the long haul, and not just because they've had moments of trauma that put them in front of a, a psychologist, but like just as a standard thing. because surveys of police officers tell us that the longer they've been on the job, the more they begin to feel callous, less empathy, less compassion for the communities that they're policing.
1: This is such a rich and good conversation, and I think it's multi-layered, and that's the point that I want to get to, because this is often framed as this is law and order, you support the police, that this is the way that it has to go. And the other track is lawlessness, getting rid of police. I've seen it in the the St. John's Creek police post. If you're supporting Black Lives Matter, you're not supporting the police. Is there a way that we can create more subtlety and nuance in that conversation so it is not so bifurcated?
3: So let me say this. When you hear the term law and order to Black folks, and Michael will agree with this. That's got a lot of history to it, and it doesn't mean anything good for people of color. It is a dog whistle. It means it's time to go out and let's kick their butts, OK? But if you think about, we are a country of laws, and the laws are there to give us some order, but in a constitutional and in a respectful way. The other piece of this, yes, there needs to be police reform in this country. Period. And what will that look like? I think it's gonna evolve over time. This is an evolution, I think, of where we're going to get to, but we know we gotta get from where we are because this does not work. But very importantly, white people gotta be involved in this conversation. White people are gonna have to be the ones who also say to other white people, racism is not acceptable. Because sometimes if I said or Michael said, We're just whining, you know, hey, you guys got great jobs. You live in a nice house. What are you whining about? I'm whining about racism, 400 years of it. Well, let me put it this way. I don't know what it's like to be privileged in America. I can have all the money in the world, but if I walk up and down the street, I'm just another black man. But to be white in America, where you can weaponize your whiteness, and we saw that To call the police on someone in hopes that it it, it will do what it has historically always done. And this was an educated woman. It's going to take her white friends to tell her what you did was foul, it was wrong, and you don't deserve my friendship. Mm -hmm. That's how we begin to make a change when it comes to issues as sensitive, because all of this reform stuff we're talking about, it all comes back to race.
1: Michael, I'd love to hear you pick up there. So for you, how do you think to frame this conversation so there's actually productive dialogue?
2: The first thing is, to be clear, almost everyone wants law and order. The question, of course, becomes law and order for what purpose? And I think arguments can be made that we have had law and order for the purposes of sustaining inequality, law and order for the purposes of fostering injustice, law and order for the purposes of separation of communities. We should be thinking about law and order for justice, law and order for equity, law and order for fairness. I think also there needs to be a fairer application of the law by the police. One of the challenges, right, is that many white people don't experience the sort and levels of policing that communities of color experience. Some of that, though, is a function of police making choices that produce disparities with regards to how we experience the police. So that needs to be confronted head on. There needs to be an acceptance that the racial disparities that we see, these are disparities that are produced through and by policing in the United States, backed by a lot of white voters, white policymakers. I think that that's key. I would also say this moment is so full of potential and hope. Yes that I I pray that it is not wasted in any way, shape, or form. That if anything can come out of the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, it is that we commit to trying to make the justice system broadly understood, not just police. We've only spoke about police, but we could be thinking, having the same conversations about the courts and the correctional institutions. That there is a, a true commitment in their names, For us to now try to make this world, this country, our communities much, much fairer, much, much more equal, and to use Cedric's term, much more compassionate, and not just in a a detached compassion, but in a full-on engaged empathy that will inform public policymaking, particularly as it pertains to the police.
1: I'm so grateful to both of you. Michael Leo Owens, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And Cedric Alexander, former Chief of Police for DeKalb County, thanks again for your time, your thoughtfulness. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, while the world was preoccupied with COVID, so were detainees in ICE's Irwin County Detention Facility. We're going to hear from a reporter who checked in on them and discovered some real issues with their care. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more on Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. While protests set off by the killing of George Floyd show no signs of letting up, another quieter protest has been stirring at an ICE facility in Irwin County, Georgia. There, a group of detainees staged a hunger strike and a protest over video chat to raise the alarm over a lack of precautions against the spread of COVID-19 inside the facility. Well, those videos made their way online. Peabody Award-winning investigative reporter Seth Fried wessler had been speaking with a few detainees at the facility for months before the outbreak. His story on their protests and the spread of the pandemic appeared in the New York Times magazine, and he's with us on Zoom to talk more about it. Seth, great to have you back on, on Second Thought.
0: Thank you for having me on.
1: Seth, you're based in New York, but you'd been reporting on immigration and immigration detention in Georgia for some time, and you'd been in contact with a number of detainees at Irwin County's facility using a video chat platform. You checked back in with detainees when COVID-19 first broke out. What kind of things did you see in your conversations with detainees there?
0: Um, You know, in in many facilities, prisons, jails, detention centers around the country— COVID-19 has spread like wildfire, and one person gets it, and dozens or hundreds, in some cases, are found to have been infected soon after that. In those hours and hours of conversations, and also from what I could just see in the day-to-day way that this place operates, it really wasn't possible for people to maintain distance. None of the detained men and women I was speaking with had masks inside of the facility. And guards were walking in and out of the units where people were held, often not wearing any masks at all. They were coming in and out from the outside. And so the risk of infection was pretty clear to me.
1: So on his website, ICE does say that they've convened a working group between medical professionals, disease control specialists, detention experts, field operators to, quote, identify additional enhanced steps to minimize the spread of the virus. What were you seeing or hearing about protections or safety procedures from the people you spoke with who were detained there?
0: Um, Certain things did change in this facility. There was some additional cleaning. Guards had their temperatures checked when they came to work, at least in some cases. Um, But inside of this ice facility, I could see through this video feed that really very little had changed at all. And I spoke and watched uh, people over these video calls who, who told me that they'd lost their sense of smell, that they felt acutely sick. But they'd not been tested, and so the scale of the problem in this facility and many ICE facilities for a long time really remained unknown. Um, it, it was it was clear to me that people were experiencing symptoms that sure looked like COVID-19 and hadn't hadn't been tested for for the virus.
1: So, given the lack of precautions being taken at the facility, detainees started fashioning masks out of disposable food containers and pleading with guards for masks to to no avail. I'm thinking that if you were an employee there as a guard or in some sort of administrative capacity, you would be concerned too, wouldn't you?
0: Absolutely. You know, there was, um, in fact, a moment in uh, my reporting, the detainees in the Irwin County facility had been trying for weeks to to organize themselves, to communicate with one another, to enter into a protest. And finally, there was this sort of moment when, a protest exploded in the facility. People went on a hunger strike. They refused food from the kitchen. People refused to go to their dollar-a-day work shifts in the commissary or the kitchen or the laundry room and were making these sorts of protest videos using the video app that we talked about. And in the midst of this protest, a guard walked into one of the units and she just began to sing, a spiritual. And she told the detained women in this particular unit that they should keep up their fight, that she was there with them. It was the sort of, for the detained women in that unit, this overwhelming moment of solidarity, it felt that way to them, in a place where they experienced what they described as as neglect, or really not hearing anything about how to protect themselves or what to do. Um, I think the concerns are shared deeply between people who work in these facilities, and the people who are held inside of them. In fact, public health experts say clearly, you know, the virus can spread between people who are working in 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 carceral facilities and people who are held inside of them. And it, and it appears that it has. Um, it appears that nurses have been in, infected in in the facility in the Irwin County Detention Center. And um, and we don't know at this point how many people who are detained there have ultimately been infected with COVID-19.
1: Well, that Protest, Uh, the the signs people were holding up, I am human. We are not safe here in English and in Spanish in some cases. Just a, a cry for help. But was ICE doing any testing or reporting any infections at the Irwin County facility at the time when their protest was going on?
0: In the Urban County Detention Center, which is run by a private company called LaSalle Corrections, ICE has actually handed over the responsibility to do testing of detained people and guards to the company itself. And so it wasn't entirely clear how many people had been tested. Uh, LaSalle Corrections, a Louisiana-based company, never got back to me, though I sent them question after question about what was going on. But it was clear in court testimony from the warden in the facility that at least at the beginning of the pandemic, very few people were being tested at all.
1: Among the things you overheard while in conversations in these video conversations with detainees was an ICE official speaking with them about the pandemic. What did he say?
0: Yeah, just days after these men and women inside of this facility began their protest, an ICE officer arrived at the unit where one of the men I'd been talking to, Nielsen Barahona, was held. And at first he and others thought, oh, great, we've succeeded. Somebody from ICE, the agency that could decide to release us, has come to talk with us. This is exactly what we wanted. But right away, this officer began to speak to them. And he told them, Nobody in this facility has been infected with the virus and there is nothing that I can do for you. Well, that was a lie. ICE had put information up days earlier on its website that in fact somebody had been infected at the facility. The men knew this, their lawyers and families had told them that there had been an infection. And yet this officer came in and rather cavalierly lied to them. And then when the men pushed back, he began to cast blame on his bosses, saying he wasn't getting any information at all, that the system was broken, um, and that, uh, that nothing was working as it should. It was a really striking moment of, of dishonesty and dysfunction in this agency that I was able to observe just because I was making these regular calls, sort of sitting in on the day-to-day life of people who are held in one of ICE's detention
1: facilities. My guest is Seth Fried Wessler, reporter and fellow at Type Investigations. He wrote for The New York Times Magazine about COVID-19 conditions in an ICE facility, an ICE detention center here in Georgia, after speaking with detainees directly via video chat. Here's a clip of a conversation you had in May. This is with a 62-year-old detainee who had tested positive for COVID-19.
0: And they have me in this
2: solitary room, you know, and I'm shaking. But every part of my body hurts.
0: It hurts to get up, to, take, to get water, or take a and All they tell telling me is that I'm going to be all right. That's not in here. And,
1: Mm. Everything hurts, he says. So, Seth, to get a better understanding of who is being held in these facilities, why would somebody be held in an immigration detention center?
0: The thing about ICE detention is that people who are held in detention centers for ICE, they're not sent there by a judge. They're not there serving a criminal sentence as a result of some violation of criminal laws. It's It's a civil immigration hold. And As a result of that, ICE has the discretion to decide who it holds almost entirely. And in situations like this, where there's sort of broad agreement that there's significant risk to detained people of becoming infected, ICE has the discretion, if it so decides, to release nearly anybody that it's, it's holding. Nielsen Barahona had lived in Georgia for two decades, mostly in Gwinnett County, Georgia, and he was pulled over one day by local police, charged with uh, DUI. And that landed him in jail. And then ICE came and picked him up and moved him to an immigration detention center. Um, he, he's moving through the, the process of dealing with that criminal case. But ICE is trying to deport him, even though he has a son here. He has a U.S. citizen wife who has petitioned for his green card. Many of these people... ICE could release on parole or on bond and allow them to proceed through their immigration cases from the outside. But increasingly, the agency has decided that it's going to detain anybody it can to try to rapidly deport as many people as it can.
1: But you point out in your article that John Sandweg, he was served as the DHS General Counsel and ICE's interim director under President Obama. He has started to question the need for mass detention. And we should point out that number of people were detained under the Obama administration. But what is he saying about these detentions and these kind of conditions?
0: So John Sandwig was the director of ICE for a period of time during the Obama administration. He was in charge of the agency. And in that period of time, because he was in charge of the agency, he was, you know, he really became part of the target of advocates calling for fewer people to be detained, fewer people to be deported. Um, Since leaving that position, he says he's changed his position on detention. He says that he realized while he was running ICE that Detaining tens of thousands of people every day, hundreds of thousands of people over a year, just doesn't make sense. And he told me that in the pandemic, in this period when detained people are at acute risk of being infected, that ICE should take action to release the majority of people who are are detained. This is the former head of the agency, a pretty striking thing for him to be saying. Um, And what he said to me is that if ICE has some fear that... By letting people out now, it might expose that there's another way to do this, another way other than detaining hundreds of thousands of people a year. He just doesn't think that's a very good reason to leave people in a place where they're at significant risk.
1: How are officials at ICE handling those kind of requests or even the suggestion that they could be detaining fewer people?
0: So after ICE released initially at the start of the pandemic, about 700 people it decided it would stop releasing people who are medically vulnerable. Um, a federal court in California intervened and told ICE that it needed to continue reviewing the people it detained to figure out if there were other people who were at risk. And the agency said that it actually identified between four or 5,000 additional people who, because of their age or health issues, are at significant risk if they become infected with COVID-19. But as of the last time I heard from ICE, a week ago or so, only 900 people collectively, 200 more people had been released from detention. And ICE's position has been in public and also in court that they call the claims that detained people are at risk speculative. They say that there's no proof that people are at particular risk. In some cases, have even said, in have even argued that um, that detainees are safer inside than they are outside. And have articulated what amounts really to a fear that if ICE releases people now in the pandemic, that it could set, quote, a precedent in the future for future releases. So in other words, the claim is that if we release people now and it sort of becomes clear that they maybe didn't need to be detained in the first place, what does that mean for ICE into the future?
1: That, as you identified, is a big existential question for ICE. So the agency itself has identified that there are more detainees who may be elderly or immunocompromised who have not been released. So how are the detainees themselves reacting to that?
0: So as a result, many people are going to federal courts to ask federal judges to order their release, to order that ICE let them out because the risk of infection and of possible death if they become infected is so great. In many cases, dozens around the country, federal judges have indeed ordered people released. But in others, judges have effectively said they don't think that they have any right to tell ICE who they can detain or how to operate detention operations. At the end of my reporting for this story, Nielsen Barahona was moved from the Irwin County Detention Center to another Georgia detention center called Stewart, uh, about two hours to the west. And 10 days later, in the Stewart Detention Center, a detained man, a 34-year-old detained man, died of COVID-19. And four days after that, the federal judge, in the case where Nielsen was asking for release, refused to, to order his release and said he'd heard nothing that would change his mind.
1: I believe that the people at the Stewart Detention Facility found out about the death not from inside the prison, but actually saw it on television? Have I got that right?
0: That's right. Nielsen called me days after I learned of the death that had been posted on ICE's website. ICE put out a press release about this man's passing. But he told me that he he had learned that this person had died, but not because anybody inside, no ICE official or facility official had told him, but because a local news report played over the television that's on the wall inside of the unit where he's held. One of the things that people who are detained have told me over and over again is that they're just being provided no information, that they're kept in the dark about what's happening. When I first started calling people in March, as I started asking them questions as a reporter, they would stop me and say, no, you tell us what's happening. What's happening outside and what's happening in here? What is going to happen to us? It was just this profound and overwhelming fear of a kind that I've actually not seen before in years of reporting on prisons and immigration detention centers.
1: So ICE is officially saying that a mass release would send the wrong sign, that there'd be, quote, a rush to the borders, unquote, and risk backsliding of immigration efforts in the country. Since the detention of children and separation of families at the border, there have been calls to disband ICE. Earlier in the program we were talking about calls to defund the police. I wonder if you see any similarities or differences in these movements.
0: Yeah, I think in in the face of systemic harm, ongoing police brutality documented failures by ICE to protect the people it detains, there are serious questions being asked by advocates across the country in different places and who have been focused on different issues about the shape of our law enforcement institutions. And those are really coming streaming forward on many fronts at this point. And in the case of ICE, it's a relatively new invention. You know, two decades ago, the agency didn't exist at all. And so people are now asking questions about whether the the agency itself needs to exist in the shape that it does.
1: Seth Freed Wessler, he's a reporter and fellow at Type Investigations. He recently wrote an article for the New York Times Magazine about a protest among detainees at an ICE detention center in Georgia for a lack of precautions of COVID-19 prevention. Seth, I want to thank you so much for your time.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Coming up, we're going to hear from the neighborhood that made George Floyd the man he was. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more On Second Thought.
3: He will take care of
1: of you. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. George Floyd was laid to rest in Pearland, Texas earlier this week. He was buried next to his mother, known as Sissy, in Houston's Third Ward, where Floyd grew up. Beyoncé and Solange Knowles also grew up in the neighborhood. So did actor Felicia Rashad, choreographer Debbie Allen, and musician Lightning Hopkins. It's a neighborhood I came to know well as a visiting artist at Project Row Houses, beginning in 2002. That's a community organization that uses art and design to preserve the identity of Third Ward, which is slowly gentrifying. Still, the area around the CUNY Homes Complex where Floyd lived remains one of Houston's poorest, with a median income of less than $20,000. Jack Yates High School, where Floyd played basketball and football, received a D rating from the state last year. But from the mid-1930s to the late 1960s, Third Ward's Northside was a bustling center of African-American economic, social, and civic life, with stores, restaurants, shops, and the elegant El Dorado ballroom lining its main thoroughfare, Dowling Street.
2: Hello, cat. I just got back. And I'm looking for that place they call the Chicken Shack. They say it's fine as wine and it's really on a
3: ball. No windows, no doors. It's just a hole in the wall. Folks lived, I mean, they, they walked up and down that street. There was a lot of entertainment. They had the the, the the El Dorado. That was the biggest thing the blacks had ever seen. Humming. I, mean, I mean, Dowling Street they talk about deep down. There are either one or two things that could happen to you. You either made it with a lady or you got yourself
1: killed. That's Ernie Atwell. I met him when I was there teaching kids to record stories of people who knew the neighborhood and watched it decline. People like Ernie and the artist, Cleveland Flowerman Turner.
0: Just gone down, down, down such a fancy watch. All the bowling days is over from around in here. There ain't no be what living in.
1: The kids and I turned those recordings into a sound installation at Project Row Houses and together we learned about the history of redlining, a discriminatory lending practice that targeted black neighborhoods across America.
3: When I was a child that was no 10, 15 lane highway. There were houses in the state Condemned your wonderful house, and you got supposedly market value. Yeah, you know I was standing on 75
1: Highway. The expansion of interstates and highways in the 1960s and 70s cut through the Third Ward and displaced hundreds of black homeowners, and turned remaining homes into rental properties. Preston Seymour's family was among those left behind.
3: All I know is that I've just seen these people. They was just leaving. And they wasn't leaving at one at a time. They was leaving at a bunch at a time.
1: But after decades of suburban white flight, downtown living became fashionable again. And Third Ward began filling up with dense new apartment blocks that dwarfed the old shotgun houses, where longtime residents like Flowerman were again pushed out.
0: Well, just take it, you might see all them apartment they building from from over yonder. Sooner or later it's going to spread and the uh, closer it gets you take a house and if it don't meet the clams up to these apartment and everything they're going to it down and make them t-
1: Flower Man died in 2013, but his home, covered in mirrors and found objects, was a destination for tourists in the Third Ward. So is the home where Beyoncé grew up a couple of blocks away. Some still flock to the site where Carl Hampton, leader of the Houston chapter of the Black Panther Party, was shot in a standoff with police in 1970. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. It was clear to me that there was something extraordinary about the life in the Third Ward, even though I was a relative tourist there myself. Now George Floyd is part of another local landmark. Two new murals depicting him have been added to what is known as The Wall. It's an improvised memorial across from CUNY Homes, where residents have for years painted the names of the dead. One of the images of George Floyd, the man Reverend Al Sharpton called an ordinary brother who changed the world, is painted with angel wings and a halo above his head reading, forever breathing in our hearts. And below, Texas made, third ward raised. I am indebted to the staff and students at Project Row House's after-school program and the residents of Third Ward. You heard Third Ward artist Amos Milburn with Chicken Shack Boogie, Lightning Hopkins' 75 Highway, and Beyoncé's banger Freedom. on On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan, supervising producer Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Special thanks today to Josephine Bennett. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for making some room for stories. And on Second Thought. I'm telling these tears going, fall away, fall away.